0: And we are back for yet another episode of behind the lens i'm debbie elias film critic creator and host of behind the lens where we go behind the lens and below the line talking with filmmakers of all sorts uh from composers and cinematographers to directors writers uh sound sound design sound mixers costumers uh production designers and, of course, on-screen talent in film and TV. And occasionally we even dive into books and music and stage. Um, welcome, welcome. You can find my movie reviews and interviews in, the, in print and online, in the U.S. and abroad, 24-7. And, of course, always on behind the BehindTheLensOnline.net. And let me just mention, I've got a wonderful interview up now. Uh, with Brian Tyler, composer, he's a noted composer, Thor, The Dark World, uh, the rearrangement of the Marvel logo that did de- that debuted with Thor, The Dark World. He's done the scores for the Expendables trilogy for Rambo. Brian Tyler, you know, his music, you might not know his name, but you know, his scoring. And he scored the ser- the acclaimed series and actually one of my favorites. Um, Yellowstone starring Kevin Costner. We're heading into the all important Emmy nomination time. And I've just got to say for all of you in the television academy that, um, are responsible for Emmy nominations and Emmy awards, do not overlook Brian Tyler and the other master craftsmen behind Yellowstone. It's written and directed by Taylor Sheridan, cinematography, Ben Richardson, um, Ben, who really broke onto the scene for most people with Beasts of the Southern Wild. Oscar-winning costumer Ruth Carter, who just picked up an Oscar this year for Black Panther. She designed the costumes for Yellowstone. Ruth DeJong, production designer. An incredible, incredible collaborative effort by all of these people on Yellowstone. And now as we head into the, into the real four-year consideration category... Uh, please take, take, give serious consideration to all of them for their work on Yellowstone. And as I said, you heard a few weeks ago excerpts of my interview with Brian Tyler. The interview is now up in written form uh, on BehindTheLensOnline.net where Brian and I really delve into specific sounds uh, that create the sonic flavor and help set the emotionality of Yellowstone with tonal thematics. Um, It's just amazing the detail, the instrumentation, the research that he did as a composer and arranger. He also did the arrangements and conducted the Philharmonia, the London Philharmonia, uh, for recording the soundtrack for Yellowstone. Uh, But, It's fascinating talking to Brian and the influences that he brings into this specific scoring, uh, going back in history and with instruments that immigrants brought over from Europe and that were then adopted by the pioneers as they were trekking their way across the United States. Um, And he's brought so much of that into the flavor of this music, which just really buttresses entire experience of Yellowstone. So that's my one big, big Emmy plug this year is for the craftsmen of Yellowstone and Kevin Costner as John Dutton is amazing. So on today's show, I'm so excited to have these two very talented writer directors joining us today. Brett Bentman, is going to be here talking about 90 Feet from Home, world premiere at Dances with Films this Thursday, June 20th. It is a very emotionally powerful drama. Fathers and sons, inner demons, a crisis of conscience, finding peace within, and within yourself. I can't wait to talk to Brett about this. And then Marcus Mazell is back. Uh, Our regular listeners may recall Marcus uh, joined us last year talking about his comedy actor for Hire. Well, he's got a new film that has its world premiere at Dances with Films Saturday Night the 22nd called Chameleon. It is so not a comedy. It is a thriller. It's interesting. Um, I love the structure of it. So I can't wait to talk to him uh the whole premise of Chameleon uh you got two two ex cons who are scamming the rich husbands with trophy wives. Uh and it's very interesting how they go about doing this and the plot points designed and it re- and Marcus really sheds a light on Joel Hogan, another Australian. Yes, I've been on Australian kick the past month or so. Uh so Marcus will be joining us at the midpoint of the show. Brett will be coming up uh, shortly. But before we get to that, embargo is lifted. Let's talk about Toy Story 4. In a word, as I've already said on social media, this is pure, it's perfection. Perfection. This is the best movie in the franchise. Um, who Whoever thought you could get better, But Toy Story just keeps getting better and better. And this time is no different. And for those of you that might be watching on the Facebook live stream on AdrenalineRadios.com's Facebook page, you will see displayed my favorite, favorite, favorite new character in Toy Story 4, Forky. You've seen TV spots. You've seen trailers. Forky is to die for. Forky is fabulous. Uh... I don't want to reveal any spoilers about the film. However, you can buy the Little Golden Book series, Toy Story 4. It is, if you want to read it before you go see the film on Friday the 21st when it opens. Um, The story is charming. They leave Bonnie's house. As you'll remember, they are now, Andy has grown up, and the toys were given to Bonnie. Well, you know, Bonnie's getting ready. Her first day of kindergarten is coming. And there are changes in the toy box, in the room. And then things happen. And Woody takes it on himself that he has to look out for Bonnie at her first day at kindergarten. And he stows away in her backpack. uh, Adventures abound. Forky gets created by Bonnie, and she loves him like a toy. So he comes to life like a toy and then they take off uh, Woody, Forky, and then things happen and it's Buzz to the rescue. And in the meantime, we've got new characters break out. First of all, Bo Peep is back. Bo Peep was not in Toy Story 3. Bo Peep is back. Annie Potts voicing Bo Peep. And I got to tell you, Bo Peep is kicking some ass and watch out for those sheep of hers. They're not just ceramic sheep. Ceramics can do interesting things. Gabby Gabby is a new character, voiced by Christina Hendricks. Um, Combat Carl, there are three Combat Carls, and they are a hoot and a holler, voiced by Carl Weathers. But I think one of the big fan favorites, in addition to Forky, is going to be Duke Kaboom, voiced by none other than Keanu Reeves. Keanu is on a roll this quarter this year. This is the year of Keanu, I think um fabulous, fabulous work, but voicing forky is Tony Hale. so let's take a listen i these I did not get taken to Orlando to do interviews. nobody paid for me to go. Disney didn't pay for me to go uh so this is these are some generic state comments that Tony had to say. Out of the Junket in Orlando about bringing Forky to life.
1: Okay, Forky came to be. Um, oh, man, there's so many wonderful things about Forky. But he, I love that, you know, Woody, because of this other, okay, so Bonnie was in school, and this other kid took away her crafts, which as a parent, I was just like, oh, I was furious about that. But she was obviously, that was upsetting to Bonnie, and then Woody saw this and grabbed these elements out of the trash pipe cleaner spork um, putty popsicle sticks put them in front of bonnie and she just started creating this forky and because of the value that she gave to this forky and loved him so much he he comes to life Um, and I, i i remember seeing that and remembering when i gave my daughter a toy when she was little and she cared more about the box than she did about the toy and it was like she started making something out of this box, and it, had, it was so special to her. And the toy was like whatever, but it was this handmade, homemade toy that she made that was so special. So that's kind of how he came alive. Forky is very childlike. He's a blank slate. He freely asks so many questions, which I love. He doesn't understand the rules of the universe of Toy Story. You know, all when humans walk in and all the toys drop to the ground, he's just like... I don't know what's happening here, you know When somebody says Bo Peep, he's like, what's a Bo? He doesn't understand that But I think, if I'm honest It was very easy to bring him to life Because I was as overwhelmed as Forky is I, I was very new to Pixar And I, could, I still can't believe I'm in this movie um, Forky kind of goes, why am I here? I'm asking the same question I'm like, I don't even know how I got here so it's uh, it was fun when they, and also when we were doing it, we couldn't read the whole script because obviously they were very they didn't want the story to get out. Um, so we would just kind of hand in these pieces of a scene, and so the the confusion and curiosity that I as an actor had, it was easy to put that into Forky because I was I had no idea what was going to happen next. I had no idea where Forky was. And so it was just kind of all that curiosity. And this is, I mean, this is where Pixar just has their magic of, and Disney, where it's like they just get you laughing and then just bawling, crying. But, um, you know, Forky obviously thought that he was made to help somebody eat some chili and then go to the trash, and just Woody shows him that he has a bigger purpose, he has more value. And I love, I mean, I just think of, I love that power of, if anybody thinks, oh, I'm just going to go this direction, or, I'm just, or somebody might tell them that they're not made for much or whatever. They're made for so much more. Everybody has such value, and everybody has such purpose. And Forky learns, like, I'm made for a lot more than just what I thought I was. And I think that's just... And the other thing about Forky that's so special is because everything is so new, a toy like Gabby Gabby... Everybody else sees it as like, oh, that's a creepy doll. Forky doesn't have that filter. He doesn't put on Gabby Gabby what society has put on her. He's like, oh, she seems like a nice person. I'm going to ask a question. And because he entered into her world, then we learn a whole other story that Gabby Gabby has. And it's because somebody made the choice to not put on what society had put on her. You know, And I love that. I love that openness. And childlike curiosity that um, Forky brings. I love that Woody, I mean, one, I will say another thing about the kind of the franchise that I think makes it so special is they're all so different. Buzz and Woody and Bo and Forky, they're all so different, but they are for each other. They're a group of characters that is like, hey, we're doing this together. Life is gonna happen, journeys, challenges, struggles, but we're not gonna walk through it alone. And it's like, what a great message to say, hey, we're not meant to live this life by ourselves. We need each other. And Woody really shows, like, hey, hey, Forky, I'm gonna walk through this with you. You know, you're not gonna do this alone. I know it's overwhelming. I know there's so many questions, but I'm I I got your back. And it's like, God, that's great. People should go see this movie because it's so funny. It's obviously like I was saying it's so the messages that came out of this story are so beautiful and profound but it's also like visually it's eye candy it's so <laughs> crazy beautiful like we as voice actors to me very small piece of the pie there, the, there's this whole other part of the pie art, the artistry the, the the creators animators the people who lit it the people that produced it Have worked so hard, hundreds of people, that I want. I want. It's almost like I want the spotlight to go on them because they're the ones that really made this happen. Because visually, it's one of the most beautiful pieces of artwork out there.
0: And I'm so glad that Tony mentioned uh, the visual wonder of Toy Story 4 because it is exemplary. It is exquisitely done. Color. Technology has advanced, so there are many more new visual delights uh, and more anthropomorphism uh, in bringing our toys to life that we can now appreciate to an even greater degree. Uh, I will say watch out for the skunk. That's You're going to love the skunk. Uh, And I would be remiss not to mention two other new characters in Toy Story 4, Ducky and Bunny voiced by Key and Peel. They are an absolute scream. Music is by Randy Newman, of course, and directed by Josh Cooley. The screenplay is by Andrew Stanton, but with a whole lot of writers helping with the story ideas, including two of my favorites, Rashida Jones and Will McCormick. So, Toy Story 4, see it, see it, see it, this weekend, It starts screening, I think AMC actually is starting with some 5 p.m. specialty screenings on Thursday night, the 20th, and then it's everywhere, uh, starting Friday morning, and I gotta tell you, I I guarantee you it will be, I'm a member of uh, Los Angeles Online Film Critics Society, and I guarantee you that's gonna end up being our critics pick for the week, and you can find out if it is or isn't this Friday, because I will be again, Doing the LA Online Film Critics, Film Critics Society weekly Critics Pick Show this Friday, live at 11 a.m. on Popcorn Talk. So you can tune in there and find out what I've got to say then. But right now, we're going to turn our attention to the fabulous writer director, Brett Bentman. Welcome, Brett. Hello.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: I am thrilled to have you, especially after seeing the film.
2: Well, I appreciate that. We're excited.
0: What a film, Brett. Wow. I was riveted from beginning to end. The emotional gravitas that you have here is, it, it really, it is striking. Um, it makes you think. It makes you sit up and take notice. And it really brings out so many emotions as you watch the film thanks to your character development and some really dynamic performances. Um, I gotta tell you, it, it just it, your cast is incredible, and I know everybody's going to be talking about WWE's Shawn Michaels, but for my <laughs> money, yep. but for my money, your two strongest performances come from Adam Hampton and Tom Hallam, particularly... Tom Hallam is such an introverted performance um, as Tommy Conway. I, I just mesmerized watching him and then watching Adam Hampton as Scott, the troubled son and stepson and brother, um, Major League Baseball player, gets injured, goes back home, and has to face the demons of life that he is so embittered and embattled over. Um and to just watch him with his body language. Really incredible, incredible job. So kudos on you, Brett.
2: Thank you, thank you. It's uh like you said, it was it was a collaborative effort. You know, our cast really prepared themselves for the film and you know, I, I'd like to take the credit on that, but they they were phenomenal.
0: You know, I've I've gotta ask you, Brett, where did you co wrote this with Scott Davis Where did the idea for 90 feet from home come from? And for those of you out there that don't know baseball, I love baseball. I got this immediately (laughs) when I heard the title. You know, it's 90 feet from the pitcher's mound to home plate. So, and essentially the whole metaphor, home plate is also home. 90 feet is out there in the world and you're by yourself when you're on that mound. So the metaphor that you have from the get-go is incredible. But where did the idea for this story come from?
2: Well, good question. We had, uh, <clears throat> we had a, an interesting conversation with Scott Scott. Scott, right? um, Adam Franklin, does a phenomenal job playing in the film. And he just, he opened up this, this can of at one, one day, kind of going through, his upbringing his past, you know, I found that he had played. Um, a of professional ball, but it was only the source to project. I didn't really push, you know, very often. But eventually he just kind of, you know, threw the story at me, and I said, well, listen, you know, I'm a screenwriter by trade, and I'd love to tell the story because I said give me, you know. This one just hearing you talk about it. And he was gracious enough to allow us to use the project and, and tell the story, and course you a very...
1: Sensitive
2: in different parts of it, and of course, we had to Hollywood the movie up at certain, you know, parts where we wanted to kind of add some more drama, or more action into the into the, the arc of some of the characters. Uh, so
1: we're really looking
2: to have the background of the story actually bring some more life. Uh, when it came to 90 Days from Home, it's actually 90 Days from Third Base to Home, so. The way that came about was a little bit of my own personal experience was uh, some of the finest memories I had growing up in, in you know rural Jersey was playing you know little and ball and there was one game that always stood out in particular to me and uh, I've told my wife the story is you know I came up with the bases loaded in the bottom of the night, and my kids, you know major league baseball dream you can be the hero. And my father running guy from the stand and, and he was a heavy guy, he smoked, so, so he had to run had big that man. and then something was happening. And we ran back to the breakers, stood behind me behind the backpack and just kept telling me that what he want I can keep him home <laughs> and uh, and you know, then I got clear for faces, and everyone celebrated. So I wanted to incorporate that. I always wanted to incorporate something like that into it. And so that so, was actually in the film you know, it helps
0: the purpose for the title. So it was kind of the best of uh, both of them. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, I think it's perfect. You know, how did you go about casting this film? Because, number one, for the role of Scott Con- Conway, and, of course, you're doing dual casting here because you're casting our main characters of Scott and Tommy Conway when they're younger and then when they're adults. But yeah. it's, it was very important to actually get somebody who looked like an athlete and had some kind of, and had the body language and the build. And I, you really knocked it out of the park, no pun intended, with Adam Hampton. And then getting the complete physical antithesis uh, with Tom Hallam to play the yeah. cop brother. Um, yeah. So I'm curious how your casting process went. And then, of course, you get Eric Roberts, who's been popping up and everything. He comes in. I know he does a couple days. He gets out. He's great. Uh, with just a few minutes on screen, and then Dean Kane, we don't see Dean enough <laughs> so I agree I mean, yeah. I'm surprised that that it turned out that Dean was not playing the role of Scott Conway. Mm-hmm. So talk to me yeah. about about bringing these people in
2: we We started with you know independent feature casting is a double-edged sword, because you know at the distribution end of the film, you've got to have someone to sell the film, you know. Um, You're always always playing this line of, don't make an independent feature if it's a drama, because none of the big distributors are going to want to buy it. And so that's lingering in back of mind, and and our film isn't a straight drama, but it's very dramatic. Mm -hmm. we started on the casting side with the names, and Eric was a no-brainer, you know, he looked yeah. amazing on film, He he's a, a total hoot, you know, he's a professional, and he turned it on when the cameras on, it, it was a great experience. With Dean, uh, he was someone that I think, I kind of started to follow more and more on social media, and I'd seen him on Fox News every now and then, and that was another kind of wasn't as easy as, as nailing down his Eric but Dean was a great choice for that role. I agree, mm-hmm. you don't see him enough
3: yeah. in
2: movies, uh, but we had recently seen some of his and I was like, this dude really can act, you know, and and um, I don't know if it's because of his, you know, political views or whatever it may be, you know, where he had not thought of, but he came on set, he was, you know, a consummate professional and just great with everything. And Sean sure was a little bit difficult of a challenge because when we were starting to cast the film we knew that the movie's success hinged on whoever played the father, whoever played Jimmy. Mm-hmm. And working with um, Tiffany, our, our producer and our casting director, we really said, Well why not just try to shoot for the stars for this thing and does it to everybody and you know, it to Mel Gibson and and Jerry Sinise and whoever we could think of that we had to play something similar, or could play something mm-hmm. similar. And then, of course, you're an indie film, so there's not enough dollars behind it. And we really came to a point where we were almost about to submit to the idea of okay, let's forget the dad and go after a bigger name for one of the two brothers. And it, I had great experience that I was at a WrestleMania event, it was a friend Who works for a trading card company, and he's like, You want to meet Shawn Michaels? And I'm like, Yeah. So we meet him at Wallace Street. And then I wake up and uh, I wife up his box the next morning and I walk out and I get this crazy idea to do out. And she's like, Who the heck is Shawn Michaels? You know? And so that day we just mulled it and mulled it. And I just called his agent and said, I've got this crazy idea with Shawn like to be in the cell. And it just took a life of its own from there. and worked scheduled and took the WWE and you know, and made it happen and went out on out in Orlando at the performance center. And he was invested from day one. As soon as he signed on the project, he became Jimmy. And he carried the for set. You know, he was set for about ten or twelve days and he stayed in character the entire ten or twelve days. And to us um, we really hope this opens the door for Sean because he's an incredible actor.
0: Yeah, I mean, he, um, I he truly... Think
2: he's been, yeah, I just don't think he's had the opportunity yet to show that to everyone, and hopefully he does with this film. Um, his brother, you know, Adam Kempman, is, is a really close friend of ours, uh, native Oklahoma guy. We've worked with him in the past, and I think he just hit the mold of mm-hmm. we wanted an imposing... Bearded, sole country kid to play Scott. Very different from the real Scott, (laughs) but that's kind of what we envisioned because we wanted this uh, contrast between only beaten down Joey Michael and big, strong country kid, you know, Adam Mm Hampton. So that worked really well. And and, and Adam also, you know, 150% devoted to the role. Sure. the interesting thing about Tom is he was the first actor we looked at for Tommy, and we never turned back from him. Everybody it, else that committed was great, but once we saw that initial tape audition from from Tom Helen, we knew he was the one.
0: Yeah, I mean he is—he uh, really. I was mesmerized when he was on screen because as we as we see play out, he's got a lot of secrets going on. Secrets yeah. that his brother doesn't know, that his wife doesn't know. So it's really interesting watching him. And I got to say, he bears such a striking resemblance to Rob Lowe. <laughs> you know, and, and he has that same casual demeanor, professional yet yeah. casual yeah. demeanor. Um, so effective. So effective in this role as as Tommy Conway, you know, I would be remiss not to ask talk to you about your cinematography, Anthony Gutierrez's work, because the look, your your visual tonal bandwidth, your palette, it's clean, it's moody. You've got a moody palette here, and it works so beautifully for the emotional depth with which you're going for. What kind of influences did you and Anthony use to to develop your visual tone?
2: Yeah, it's a it is a moody film and I think from day one we decided that was the look and feel we were going for. We didn't want to make a highly produced film, if that makes sense. We wanted it to be muted, the colors very orange oranges, brown, green. And kinda gave the most public feel like a hell or high water or a no country for a fence, a much smaller film. Uh, Anthony was a pretty camp guy, and so we, we definitely wanted the film to look like one shot on a massive camera, the size of a truck, and we could only move it if we absolutely had to. And, and the people to, much shots, I think of it as, I like to thing in one shots, and the audience can the scene play out. I do that for two reasons. first is because I think when you're wider sometimes, um, you're not thrown into emotions. You can kind of develop them yourself. And from the an actor's perspective, it looks them tell, hey, you got from this point to that point to do wrong and get from A to, K to Z. And so we definitely wanted to work with wide styles. We wanted the very fluid, you know, minimal movements, things like that.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And okay. very. Um, He's very adept with with working and study cams. I had a huge shaking cam guy, so over the shoulder or I'm mm-hmm. sorry, shoulder rigs wasn't gonna work and he just came up with that vision and stuck to it the entire shoot.
0: Yeah, no, I I really love the whole look, your palette. And I have to say, third act, the interior, there's a fight scene, not to give anything away, but there is a fight scene. It's in an interior. Um, beautifully done. Very claustrophobic, being inside, um, and then dark. Your colors get very, very dark with that inky blue-black, but not a total night look. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, really, things playing out in the shadows within the house uh, really adds so much to that third act of the film and what's happening from an emotional standpoint. Beautifully done. Well, before I before I have to let you go so that your other Dances with Films filmmaker who's who's coming on after you, um, I've got to ask you about the music, Marty Miners and the music that you chose. What? Yeah, because the music, it's not overpowering. It's also it also does not lead us. It provides an undercurrent but it also captures the emotional tonality of the film. So I'm curious about, you know, you're working with Marty and your notes to him as to what you were looking for.
2: Yeah. We, we, well, you said it best. I mean, we wanted a <laughs> score that was going to help push the emotions of the scenes but not dictate them. So uh, I sent him some other films that we really liked the soundtracks of or the score, and... He kind of built some songs around that, some tracks, and then would send them to us, and we'd, we'd tweak things here and there and add a piano hit here or a bass hit.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and we knew... We had never worked with Marty, but I had worked with someone very close to him that I trusted that said, Marty, can he can nail this. And we think he did an amazing job, you know, and he was very open to criticism. He was open to changing things. Um, and then there was always... Not to give anything away, but at the end of the film, there is a song that plays uh, in in the, I guess you'd call it the climax of the Mm -hmm. film, through the credits. And that was a song that we saw on network TV on an episode of Yellowstone. And it was funny because we're sitting there watching the episode and I'm rewinding it. And my wife's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I have to have this song in the movie. And she's looking at me, she's like, is that Whiskey Myers? And I said, I don't know, because I'm not a, a, you know, country rock type guy. And um, I just put it on her and said, get me that song for the film. And she worked her magic and talked to the Whiskey Myers guys.
0: Oh, my God. And to
2: me, when that song hits, it really kind of, even the words, the tone of it kind of just sell up the movie and end it, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, so between that song and Marty... I think we've got, you
0: know, a hell of a score to the to the film. Yeah, no, and, and I love your choice of that song um, for the end of the film because uh, I'm a huge Yellowstone fan. And <laughs> as a matter of fact, I, I kicked off the show talking about uh, my interview with Brian Tyler who did all of the scoring for Yellowstone for seasons wow. one and two. Um, so, yeah, it brought a smile to my face when you mentioned, but, yeah, when I heard it with this film, being familiar with it from Yellowstone, I was just tickled, and it really does fit so well. So now everybody, you've got the world premiere Thursday night. Yeah, at Dances with Films. We what, are
2: super excited.
0: What time?
2: We are our world premiere will be Thursday at nine thirty. Uh, TCL Chinese Theater there in the heart of uh, the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Hollywood, We're super yeah. excited.
0: Hollywood and Highland. Most
2: of the cast and crew will be there. Yep. Yeah.
0: Amazing. Brett, I can't thank you enough for calling in today, and I can't thank you enough for making this film. I love it.
3: <laughs> well, I appreciate it.
0: I love it. And, I don't know, I may I may try and wander down there Thursday night and, and meet up with Kim, um, and if I do, I will definitely say hi. But, please, I hope you'll come back on the show again.
2: Absolutely. We've got... Uh... We're always working, we're always making films, and we'd love to share them with you.
0: So, And I would love to hear about them. Uh, <laughs> Brett, thank you so much, and have fun at the premiere.
2: Awesome. Thank you so
0: much. Thanks, I Brett. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that was Brett Bentman, writer, director of 90 Feet from Home. And you heard it, world premiere at Dances with Films this Thursday, June 20th at 930 at the Chinese Theater, man's the complex upstairs. It's not in the big Chinese. It's upstairs in the in the Theater Six uh, area. And now, patiently waiting, my buddy Marcus Mazel. Hello, my friend. Hi. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. Well, again. of course, I'll always have you. You know, only don't wait until less than a week before you. You know, the film is premiering to say, Oh, hey. me out.
4: <laughs> hey, you know what? Fair enough. Fair enough.
0: I'm going to call you out on I'll, that I'll, one. I hit
4: you up about, I hit you up about, uh, at least a week before next time.
0: Oh, thanks. Thanks. Yeah. Well, you know, I've been remodeling the
4: house. I have so many excuses. I'm not even going to get into it. So you,
0: many excuses. That's that, And plus you've been, you've been working, you've been making movies and, Wow, wow. And funny. I gotta I gotta give a shout out to one of my favorite films of the year so far that you, you did some grip work on. Bolden. Oh Lord. Oh my god. You know what's funny is that's the first that's one of the first things I ever
4: gripped on back in two thousand and eight. No 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 no. Two thousand and six. Um, and you know, it's been going since then. They finally finished it last year, I yeah. guess and finally out. But yes, yeah, I cannot get it off my IMDb. It looks like I'm still a grip. <laughs> in so.
0: No, because I know <laughs> but, you know, it's, you it's you honor. you did grip work on Dan's first version of that film.
4: Exactly, the very first test shoot they had in Wilmington, North Carolina, and then the first kind of shoot that Bill Zygmunt shot. So I got to work with him right. for him for like a few days, um, and I mean he's you know he was one of the best ever. That was that was that was worth it right there. So. Oh well, but it course. is funny because IMDb, I'm like, should I take my good credit off or should I just keep it? Let me let me keep it.
0: The very fact but, that uh, that it will allow you to to qualify it and then say to people you worked with Vilmos, you leave it on there. Yeah. Um, you know, people would kill to have worked with him.
4: Um, I know. In retrospect, it's amazing. Yeah, at the time, it's like, who's this crazy short guy?
0: You know, (laughs) and and of course, then, you know, when you were still doing grip work, um, you worked with my friend Mm -hmm. Rick Waugh on Snitch.
4: Oh, my God. What a great day.
0: You know, Rick, I've known Rick and Scotty for 37, 38 years now.
4: That was the best show I've ever worked on. my Snitch was so fun. We actually made a uh, crew video with all, all, you know, the rocks in it and Barry Peppers in it and uh, Rick's in it. (laughs) And we premiered it at the uh rap party and it was just a blast. I'll send you a link to it. You gotta
0: see it. Did you ever see the picture that Rick ta uh took of uh, with the um the, the tractor trailer and with the rock plastered right up they were plastered right up against the grill? It's hilarious. No. Oh my god. I, I mean I've,
4: I've not seen the pic, no. These You're gonna love this video though. No these promise.
0: stunts on that film. Absolutely amazing! Yeah. I've known Rick and Scotty since, well, and I knew their dad, Fred, um, who was a, re- guy, right? a renowned stunt man, renowned right. stunt man. Stunt so yeah, now,
4: Rick was so cool. His vibe, and his tone, and his respect for crew man, he was he was awesome. Yeah, get that a lot.
0: No, I love him dearly, and I can't wait to see uh, Angel Has Fallen uh, because he he directed yeah. it. So. Yeah. I'm waiting for that one this August. So, Well,
4: you know what? Actually, during Act of the Hire, last time we talked, four years ago, he actually answered a lot of my technical questions that I had for delivering stuff. You know, he, he didn't, his ego isn't isn't really there, which is nice, you know? He's got some grip kid bothering him about, you know, delivery questions. He's like, yeah, no problem. Do this. Don't worry about that. What's
0: yeah. No, I mean, mm. you know, the thing is, you know, when you're brought up right, and, you know, his dad was an amazing guy. So Rick and Scotty both are just fabulous directors but fabulous people. And I think that's oh, I gotta, that's yeah. what keeps them, you know, chugging along, being particular with the work they do and doing it mm-hmm. with such expertise and professionalism. And, you know, well, it, the
4: actors, I mean his casting was so money and his and the, the cast totally respect just the respect that he gets. I mean, being a grip, you know, on sets, like yeah, you're, you're lighting stuff and you're supporting camera, but you're also, if you're a filmmaker, you're observing. You know, you should be at mm-hmm. all times. And Rick, Rick is definitely a great example. It does not always go that way. But yeah. I gotta say before I forget, I also met my baby mama <laughs> <laughs> um, on that show as well. By the way.
0: Oh my God. Say that. Wow.
4: Um, That was a special one. That was a special one,
0: man. But you know, for you
4: Louisiana.
0: You know, this is so important for you and it's I think it's important for filmmakers that are listening or wanna be directors and filmmakers to hear you talk about experiences like this as a grip. It's like I don't wanna be a grip forever. Mm -hmm. Well, Mm -hmm. you know, you take the job and you learn. You got to work with Vilmos. You obviously learn about cinematography working and watching Vilmos. You're working with Rick. He answers questions for you. All of this, if you're paying attention and you're passionate about moving forward and getting into directing or cinematography, you take these steps and you watch and you learn because you do much of your own cinematography, You do your own editing for the most part. You write, direct, produce. And it's all of your experience over the years of watching and learning from, you know, the veterans that has just added to your abilities to turn a film out like Chameleon. It's that simple.
4: Well, I was, you know, well, 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 I mean, the, the first thing is that, you know, I mean, why not...
1: Get on set. If
4: you want to make films, you need to know what a real set's like. You need to, maybe not, it depends on, everybody's different, every path is different, but the option for me, the clear option was get on set and get paid to learn, you know? Why wouldn't I do that? Um, you know, but you got to be willing to travel. you got to be willing to treat it like a carnival kind of, you know, like you got to go to work, kids. it's not going to come to you. But once you kind of do that, if you're a 20-something single guy, it's a lot easier to do that, you know, and you know kind of what you want. Like mm-hmm. you know you want to direct, and you give yourself a five-year plan or whatever, you, you know, and you're willing to learn. I mean, man, it, it's crazy what you learn. Like, even the practical stuff, like knowing how to rig a camera to a car, I wouldn't have kn- known how to do that if I didn't grip. <laughs> you know? Uh, lighting. It's general lighting. Like, what you don't need is what's most important to know. Yeah, Does that make sense? But what you don't need in lighting is, is what I learned.
0: And that's very how important grip, you know, when like you... That. It's very important when you start doing your own independent film productions, and... It, you, you've got budget concerns, low budget, no budget, micro budget. Yeah. You've got to look at every penny. And when you don't have to get a bigger light kit, well, that saves you money that you can then apply somewhere else.
4: Well, I look, I fully believe in collaboration and having a, a, the best team of folks. But let's be honest, you know, that, that doesn't come free. Right. Uh, you know, it's quality. And a lot of times you've got two choices as an independent filmmaker. You either make the movie with what you need. Or you make the movie with what you have, you know. Mm-hmm. And I made the movie with what I had. That's what I've been doing. And I, you know, I, I'm trying to get away from that more in the future. But that's what it is. And like, you know, when you move forward in that direction, you do the best you do. You do the best you can with what you know. And uh, and yeah, I mean, collaboration is a is a big deal. But like, I'm writing, I'm directing, I'm editing, producing, shooting most of it. It's like, is that really for the best? No, but. It gets the film done, and the right. film, you know, just needed done, and uh, needed to get it out of my system. I guess.
0: Well, yeah, because you and I had talked about this before with actor for hire, and when you're wearing all of the hats, sometimes you need another voice to come in to clarify something Absolutely. or to clean it up. Um, I know there are some directors who will never give up the reins of anything they're doing. They're producing, mm-hmm. writing, directing, editing, cinematography, and they will not. Yeah. They will not, you know, give an inch. And you, then you've got to stand back and say, Is that really the best thing for the work? Or for your sanity? That's that's,
4: that's the question. <laughs> that's the question right there. Is it the best thing for the movie? Not about me. You know, I'm here to to help guide this thing and maybe to breathe life into it or whatever you need to do. But yeah, it's not about you. It's not the movie for sure. I mean, I'm I'm in the midst of a documentary right now and all the footage that I've shot and you know, all these, uh, these things that, that I, that I uh, wrangled together, but it wasn't until I actually, you know, my producer and, and his editor came on board to so really do some tweaks that it would go to that next level, mm-hmm. you know, beyond what I thought, where I thought, it, you know, the best it could be. And it's like, okay, collaboration. Let's mm-hmm. do
0: it please. Well, your collaboration yeah, has um, delivered something really great with chameleon. Um, I just I, th- this was just this whole story, this whole premise. I found oh. it I found it very interesting, where you've got two <laughs> ex cons team up on the outside, and they come up with a with a a scam to scam rich husbands um, by quote unquote kidnapping their their trophy wives, demanding ransom um mm-hmm. very, very ingenious
3: family
0: very family friendly mm-hmm. I don't know who's fan for whose family but it's mm-hmm. uh, you know it's uh, the premise is great and oh good Thank the, uh, you. I really love the premise Marcus and but oh, then good. the way you have developed the editorial through line because you really give us the sense of passage of time um with, you know, just these constant little, constant little reminders of, you know, a different woman. But the kicker of everything is you've got one your main character, Patrick, played by Australian Joel Hogan. Um, mm-hmm. Women That's are just uh, women are falling down at his feet. So obviously he is the best person in the scam to be the one to entice these women to enter into illicit affairs with him. Um. Mm-hmm. He's very, very convincing, very effective, and then you partner him up with Donald Prabat, what Prabata As Dolph.
4: Prabata. I'm like, I have to ask him
0: after
4: this interview. <laughs> before,
0: before Saturday night, right? You want to, you want to say his name, right?
4: Yeah. Um, Donald, what's your name?
0: Yeah. How do you say it? Hey, I do that all the time. You know, it's yeah. Like, well, look, people
4: get my last name wrong all the time, so I don't feel bad.
0: But, But no,
4: Donald was phenomenal, like, audition room, like, I actually did not see him coming at all. It's like, okay, this guy could be interesting as far as reading for the part. And I'll be honest with you, as soon as he read, I'm like, this is, Joel and I both were like, this is probably the guy, you know, and he just had this imposing quality. Um, but also authentic quality. I, I love Donald. Man, he's
0: so talented. It's it's it for us. very authentic as an ex con and an ex con who really never has any plans to ever rehabilitate and walk the straight and narrow.
4: He's, he's totally exactly no change in him.
0: Where you've got Joel's character of Patrick, it's like, look, I'll do it, make some money, and I'm done. Uh, you could tell he, wa- and, he, you know, he wants to change his and life, he's, and
4: he's got that. And he's got that like he owes him a debt from prison. You know? Yeah, he owes him a debt from being protected. And it was tricky to be like a criminal hero story, a crime story where the mm-hmm. criminal is the hero or the protagonist. is so tricky because how do you get the audience to get behind this guy when he's doing, you know, doing criminal stuff? And I, you know, the attempt to try to the two things that I thought might help is to have him. Kind of have to go along, but this guy is not going to leave him alone, you know, from a debt that we have, you know, that he's paying back. But also, the people that they are targeting are also kind of crappy, people yeah, in society. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? they're, they're not, they're superficial,
0: very, you know? very much so. Um, you know, the women are superficial, but the men are even more superficial, absolutely, and yep. that's something striking. But where you really succeed. In finding that balance for Patrick to make him uh, likable but also empathetic um, Mm -hmm. is with the way you've structured this story, bringing in the characters of Rebecca and Frank, particularly Alicia Leigh-Willis as Rebecca.
3: Right.
0: And Mm -hmm. because this creates a whole new dynamic in the film. She's not just a mark. Mm -hmm. You can see. You know he mm-hmm. cares, and there are so many moments. It's like I'm just waiting for the words to come out of his mouth to admit to what he's doing. Um, so that really that shows us this man has a conscience. He's not all bad, and he really does. When he says, "This is it, the last one, last score, I'm done, goodbye," and you believe it. The question for
4: you. you so you had you actually said so, okay, good. So so you could tell he wanted to uh
0: tell her the truth oh god yeah kind of had his tied a
4: little
0: bit oh my give
4: anything away
0: no not to give anything away but no this one he this mark he did want to tell the truth to he had started caring and Mm -hmm. you know but there's all kinds of twists and turns between rebecca and her husband frank and i got i got to say jeff prater He's fabulous, yeah. fabulous. Oh,
4: good. He's my man. That's my main man. I, I
0: love him as Frank. He's and so, yeah. I got to yeah. tell Another you.
4: Another guy. He came in, like, once he auditioned for the part, it's like, okay, yeah, probably the guy. You know.
0: Oh, my God. He is fabulous. And I have to say, from a story standpoint, you've got twists in here I did not see coming. Yeah. Because of the the way you edit this film and the way you structure it, we have, okay, present day and some women are talking and they're crying and, uh, you know, you Mm -hmm. don't know who they're talking to. Is it a reporter? What's going on? Um, Mm -hmm. And you bounce back and forth with this throughout the film. And we never see Rebecca or Frank until we really get to the third act. And then you you just throw twists and turns on us that really. Oh, I'm
4: so I'm so grateful that you that you did because that was the, that was the, the the initial hope of kind of pursuing a project like this, which is I would like to do or at least try to do a thriller with a, a reveal every five pages, every yeah. five minutes, you know, e- every ten minutes.
0: Every time um, you turn around, so yeah,
4: it feels good to hear that.
0: You know, and the way you have cut yeah. it with your pacing, we do understand. That they're pulling this off a lot. You've got a bunch of different women, a bunch of of, you know, husbands willing to throw money out. They they you know that's the amazing part. They they're willing they're willing. They may only be trophy yeah. wives, but man, they're willing to pay for them to get them back. Yeah, I
4: think also they're shamed. Like they're kind of shamed in the yeah a little
0: bit, you know, and they, and they want to have the control and the power back.
4: Maybe you know and. um uh...
0: Yeah, it's it's you know, but uh, uh it, yeah. your structure is so interesting here. But oh, I but it. Well, for I you, d- say, you the... to pull off a thriller. Sorry, to interrupt you. Go ahead. No, I was saying for for you to go from actor for hire to a thriller like Chameleon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I I just love love, and I gotta say, I, I number one, I see growth in you as a filmmaker between the two, and mm-hmm. also I think this the thriller. I really think this is more your niche. You have oh, you you have a really well, really good grasp of this of this genre. I uh,
4: thank you. Well, look, I mean, I have my doubts. to Be honest with you. I'll be honest. Like going from comedy to a thriller is it's crazy. It's yeah. like a whole it's a one eighty for sure. And for me, like comedy in my mind, at least. I always see comedy as obviously you have story first, drama, whatever, mm-hmm. the gags, whatever. But then you have the comedy on top, like a sprinkling of like, okay, if they don't, if they're not into the story as much, maybe we'll save them by at least making them laugh every couple of moments.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh, with a thriller,
4: it's like you have to maintain authenticity, and yeah. you know you cannot distract them. You gotta you gotta keep up the illusion the whole time. And if you have one little gaping hole in that thing. It's so much more obvious than in a comedy,
3: mm-hmm. you
4: know, so I did 35 cuts of this movie, and Whoa. I wish I could have done 40, but time was running out, I had to get it done, but <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I just always felt like that was my concern, like, does this feel real, does this feel deliberate, you know?
0: It so re- nice for you to you
4: no, say those things?
0: No, I really, sure. well, come on, you know, if it sucked, I would tell you, and I, and, well,
4: okay, then, I you know. know. Yeah.
0: Everybody knows that if it sucks I'm going to tell you. And yes, I will yeah, tell you yeah. live on the air. It doesn't matter. I <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, believe you. May. I uh, love
4: that. I appreciate the honesty. But it, I wanted to say like as far as structure before I forget. So the script itself, you know, we had I had basically the big bear stuff without giving anything away. You know what I'm talking about?
0: I know what you're talking about. The big about.
4: bear sequence. That was initially the first 10 minutes of the film. And then we would go – then we started the where the beginning is now after that, and then we'd lead back up to the Big Bear stuff.
3: Mm-hmm. You
4: had this kind of like – this sequence where, like, okay, you think this guy is a victim, and then by the end of the sequence, he's actually the the perpetrator, mm-hmm. you know. And that's kind of the whole uh, idea of the film itself, as far as what you think it is, is not that. And, but, you know, after putting it together that way, it's crazy how it works on the page, and you put it, you put it on the uh, – you edit it together, and it was not working. It just was not, it was not working, and uh, so we, we went back to a linear kind of approach.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: And I think why it wasn't working is because I think Hero's journey is what we decided to go with, and the journey doesn't start uh, for him um, if, if basically you know, you're showing something that's 60 to 70 minutes into the film. Right. Um, and also when you feel cheated by this character, who pretty much lied to you in the first 10 minutes, that's where I was like, I don't know if this is the right. So as far as just taking what you wrote and then having an open mind in the edit, I think we, I think we made the right choice.: I, think, write, I, I definitely
0: it, think you did, Marcus. I definitely think it, you did, because it, it took me five cuts to realize this, but yeah. But hey, you know, patience is a virtue. God, God bless God bless the editor.
4: Um, well, I think also these low-independent films, I mean, you can actually take your time. That's the one thing you have, If you, it, you know, there's like nobody breathing down your neck. Mm-hmm. You can at least try to, you know, try to edit this thing as much nice as you can, you know.
0: Now, um, talk to me. I got to talk to you about the music. Because that's, okay. that's the one thing that actually I would probably have gone a different direction. Um, okay. You've got a very sci-fi thrum that repeats oh, okay. and repeats and repeats. It sounds... Right. Kind of a Blade
4: Runner-ish?
0: A kind of a Blade Runner, but it actually sounds more like a toned-down sound of the mm-hmm. incredible Mr. Limpet. Um, but okay. <laughs> it has a very... Si- it, it, it's so related and so... Ti- that sound is so tied in with sci-fi that it mm-hmm. makes you wonder what's coming. But then, as soon as you get rid of that and you go into Jeremy's more pr- traditional scoring, mm-hmm. it's perfect, perfect. Yeah, okay. But yeah. that that thrum, I think there's, I think there's maybe too, maybe it's too much of it because it mm-hmm. does it every time you hear well, it, something foreboding, something foreboding, something foreboding.
4: Yeah.
0: Well, here's the idea behind
4: that. The idea
0: was
4: his t- he had three. Uh, kind of main themes for the score,
0: mm-hmm.
4: one being deceptive theme, deception theme, one being, you know, an honest, pure theme, and then one conflicted. And we decided let's make his deception theme sound kind of like uh, digital and like, you know, super fake, you know, man, man, uh, manufactured. Right. Like, you know, because he's not being – and then, of course, his honest stuff is – uh more uh, you got some violin in there, you have a little bit of uh, you got piano for Rebecca's theme, you know. Uh and then the conflicted is kind of somewhere in the middle. So that was the idea behind it. Um but you know, I've heard mixed reviews. Like I, I think say most people have said this that was a favorite thing about the movie. Ah. And then, you know, I think you're the second person that's like, Oh maybe not that But I heard the same thing with actors of hired too, like, oh I wouldn't have thrown an no old classic jazz score for that and I'm like, well
0: Oh no that yeah, worked that boy, worked yeah. perfectly that that was that was brilliant for yeah. that film that was yeah. brilliant for that film. I, I gotta say
4: in, in jeremy's defense, maybe I overused some of it in some places like he gave me those three those mm-hmm.
3: three themes
4: and the variations of those themes and then i I went in and placed them and put and tweaked them and all that stuff so that could be a you know factor too but but I do like the idea of like you know this manufactured digital.
0: Oh, I, lo- I love the idea. Person. I love the idea yeah. of that. But I think it might have been. I think you might have overused. Gotcha. Okay. I think okay. I think you might have overused. before Saturday. So well, I don't think they want you re-editing <laughs> before Saturday. But,
4: I'm kidding.
0: No, you're not. I know you. If you oh, could. Oh,
4: I'm not touching this thing.
0: If you could.
4: Anymore.
0: You'd go back in and do it. Um, ah,
4: you know, it's true.
0: Yeah, I know. I know. That's that's making a movie, I guess. I mean, that's how I am with Active Heart, too. It's like, oh, can I just do this and that? Can
4: I tweak this real quick? Nope.
0: Yeah, well, before I'm totally out of time on the show here today. World premiere Saturday night. What time? Seven
4: fifteen Pacific time. Chinese Theater. Seven fifteen,
0: the Chinese Six upstairs. Now, who all is going to be there? Who all going to be there for uh, Q and A and for your your grand world premiere? Yes.
4: So um, unfortunately, uh, Joel Hogan will not be able to make it. He's, he's in Australia. He had to go to China for some TV show he was in. Oh. I think that was, you know, uh, he's not able to make it. So um, I'm clearly sad about that, but he he can't come. But uh, he sent me a nice coffee mug with a chameleon poster on it, so well, I'll do um, good. <laughs> but we have everybody else. Donald Provita's coming. I got to double check on Alicia if she's coming. Hopefully she's listening. It's, uh, she's like, oh, I'm a good take it."
0: Well, you'll be there. Uh, but
4: everybody else. We have about 20 folks there, so wow. We'll be there.
0: Wow, that should yep. be some Q and A. Maybe
4: fifteen, maybe twenty is an overshoot. Maybe I think fifteen. A lot of all the husbands, um, all the pretty much all the cast, and our three people on crew.
0: Mhm. That's fabulous. And there are, and I checked. Are you going to be there? I am going to try and be there. Oh yeah. I'm. I promise. Okay. I'm. And because it's earlier okay. and it's okay. on Saturday night. You know, yeah, yeah. you got a much better shot of what? getting me there for yours than anybody else has.
4: <laughs> You've already watched the film anyway, I'm just kidding.
0: Appreciate- but no, I, you know I love seeing the films on the big screen.
4: It's so much better. Uh, you oh know,
0: this is, a, this is a big thing for me is I always, when I can, I would much rather see a film, if it's at all humanly possible for me to see it on the big screen, in a screening room, or wherever they're being held, as yeah. opposed to just watching a link. Now, as it is, when I get uh, links, yeah. I watch them on a fifty-inch TV, so I'm not watching it. Oh, you know, I'm not watching things on a tiny little, you know, on just a laptop or on a phone. I'm actually hooking it Every up. Every time
4: to, I send a link out, that's my concern. I'm like, damn it, they're going to watch it on the damn, you know, thirteen-inch screen.
0: Yeah, but, see, uh, and I what can't. What do you think
4: about Could I mean, you hear like the sound design and the, it's just the, the whole? I cannot wait for the mix to, to finally be heard. Yeah. I like the, the
0: I, I like the sound design. The the mix was fine. Um okay. your exterior sounds sounded great. Mm-hmm. Um there was contrast and delineation between sounds of nature, footsteps, uh okay. the nice. tires on the dirt versus gravel versus the road. Um, you know, sounds within the interior, but of you know, so you real and the bar scenes you could hear the glasses. Yeah, I I'd love to, to to nitpick on those little things. It's like, come on, you're in a bar no, and sure. you've got twenty people drinking and you don't hear any glasses. <laughs> uh, yeah, it d- takes you out
4: of it. Yeah, it takes you the other way. So no, so yeah.
0: I'm happy. I'm happy with the sound mix how it's how it sounded to me. But I am curious. So you how— you
4: just don't want me to send you a copy of the score.
0: You can send it. <laughs> you can send it. <laughs> Thank
4: you for being honest. I appreciate it.
0: Yeah.
4: Yeah. Well, look, sure. the sound design is going to be my favorite part for me personally to finally hear it. You know, around us and you know, Saturday night. Yeah. Personally, too. So, well, well, that'll make me feel good.
0: Unfortunately, we are all out of time today.
4: Unbelievable.
0: Unbelievable. And I know you've got more films that you're working on, so you are coming back on the show. Yeah. You have no Uh, choice. Every time. You have have no choice. You know, you just like to give (laughs) me, and you owe Greg Kinnear since Greg was supposed to call in, was supposed to do today's show, but he got a call to go. He's shooting today, so he couldn't do the show. So you got his slot today instead of next week. Typical Kinnear. Hmm? Typical Kinnear. You replaced Greg Kinnear today. What can I tell you? I love it. I love it. That makes my day. Thank you so much. <laughs> All right, my friend. Thank you. Thank you so right. much. And hopefully I so will much. see you Saturday night. Yes, I
4: will see you then. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Marcus. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that was Marcus Mazel, writer, director, producer, editor, cinematographer of Chameleon World Premiere, Dances with Films, Saturday night, 7.15 at the Chinese Six theater complex upstairs from the Chinese theater at Hollywood and Highland. We are totally out of time over time. Big boss will probably kill me. Pam doesn't care. Um, so toy story four in theaters this Friday. See it. See it. See it. It will be probably your favorite picture of the year. Catch these films and dance with the films. there are plenty of films at, Dan- at DWF all playing all this week. A lot of good ones. We talked about a lot of them last week. So, Until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens.